Why don't we talk about the microbes down there? This is The Big Question. Each month in The Big Question, we explore the world's biggest challenges with researchers from the University of Calgary. Our microbiomes, the trillions of microorganisms that live in, on, and around us are vital to our health. They program our immune system from the moment we're born, and they affect every system in our bodies for the rest of our lives. But so far, much of the focus has been on our gut microbiomes and the connection between our brains and our guts. But what about the microbiomes in other parts of our bodies? How do they behave differently from our gut microbiomes, and what impacts do they have on our health? In this episode of The Big Question, we're talking to Dr. Laura Securo, a professor in New Calgary's Cummings School of Medicine, about studying the microbes that live with us in places we often don't want to talk about. My main area of research is in the microbiome of the urogenital tract. So we focus mainly on the vaginal niche, so that's the body site in the urogenital tract that has the most microbes and is really important for women's sexual and reproductive health. And that ranges everything from uh, protecting against sexually transmitted infections or STIs and promoting a healthy pregnancy. So most microbiome researchers are focused on the gut. How did you get into your area of research? So I actually first got interested in the microbiome or understanding how bacteria interact with a host by studying a uh, symbiosis system between a Hawaiian squid and a bioluminescent bacteria. So I worked at the University of Hawaii and studied this, uh, what's called the squid vibrio uh, symbiosis model system for a couple of years and really fell in love with the idea that we're um, more complex than just our own human selves, that we really are com- completely physiologically intertwined with the microbes that live in and on us. So, of course, um, I started studying this from the standpoint of pathogenesis. That's where most research at the time was focused when you're talking about bacteria that interact with humans. And then as part of my master's degree, worked a little bit on human papillomavirus, a virus that's important, uh, can be sexually transmitted and contribute to cervical cancer. So that's how I got interested in women's health and really started to realize that there are not only viruses, but also bacteria in the female urogenital tract and the vaginal niche, and that um, they're really important for dictating a woman's health throughout her life course. Um, and that really starts at sexual debut. And, you know, just like with HPV, then those exposures that happen throughout a woman's life can have an impact all the way through postmenopausal period and the uh, risk then of cervical cancer and other, um, other health outcomes. So in episode seven and eight of The Big Question, we heard about the microbiome of the gut and other aspects of the hollow biome, which I learned means the total existence of you and everything in between. Is there a connection between the microbiome of the gut and the and the microbiota of the urogenital tract? Yeah, so it's actually quite interesting. The the urogenital microbiome, urogenital tract microbiome is actually quite unique. Um, so in it kind of defies what we consider 
typical for most other human body sites. So you might have heard that in the gut, when you have a very diverse microbiome, so you have many different organisms populating that body site, it's considered healthy. And in a more diseased state or a state of uh, suboptimal uh, conditions, the microbiome is less diverse and there's fewer microbes present. In the female urogenital tracts, um, what we see is that there is typically one dominant species. And this is typically a species of lactobacillus. And we know that there are over 180 species of lactobacillus, and yet the human female vagina typically only has one of four dominating. So it's a highly evolved ecosystem with a very unique microbial signature. And these dominant lactobacilli are thought to protect the niche from invading pathogens. So they create an acid environment and other molecules like hydrogen peroxide that kill infectious uh, viruses and bacteria. So these lactobacilli, through these, these products that they produce uh, that are antimicrobial, they protect the urogenital tract from uh, sexually transmitted infections that could harm a human pregnancy. So in episode eight, especially of The Big Question, we learned about affecting or changing the microbiome of the gut through a fecal transplant. Is there an equivalent for changing or altering the microbiota of the urogenital tract? So interestingly enough, the first equivalent of that, the first human female vaginal microbiome transplant happened in 2019. And the study that they did concluded that you can successfully remodel the vaginal microbiome uh, to a more healthy state from a dysbiotic state when you do a vaginal microbiome transplant. So the dysbiotic state of the human vaginal microbiome is what we consider a more diverse state where there are diverse anaerobic bacteria present instead of this dominant lactobacillus. So again, it's the opposite of the gut when we have a low dominance state in the vagina. It's not as healthy as when we have a lactobacillus dominant state. So in this dysbiotic state, it's associated with a clinical condition called bacterial vaginosis. And this condition is extremely common in women. It's the most common reason that women seek health care when they have something going on with their vagina. It turns out that most of the time it's um, BV is what we call it, or bacterial vaginosis. And it can cause symptoms in about half of the women who have it. But a lot of women actually don't even have symptoms. So if a woman has symptoms and she seeks the care of her doctor, she will get a prescription of antibiotics. And they tend to be quite effective right away. But about half the women who do have symptoms and receive antibiotics will get BV again within a year. So that's a very high recurrent rate. And so some women then just get it again and again, and it can be quite debilitating. It can really affect self-confidence. It can um, lead to symptoms of depression and just, um, you know, women often are just very uncomfortable and very, uh, it affects their social lives and things like that. So when women have recurrent BV, we really don't have good alternative therapies. Uh, the main therapy hasn't changed in 20 years. And it's because we don't understand this microbiome. We don't know how to reset it to this lactobacillus dominant state. And so kind of unlike the gut, a lot of times where we're still trying to decide what is healthy and what isn't, we know what's healthy in the vagina. There's only a couple species that are unequivocally healthy 
And yet we can't medically help a woman have that type of the microbiome. So with this transplant, they showed some early evidence, it's very early still, that they could help some of these women who just couldn't be helped with any other treatment to restore a lactobacillus-dominant microbiome. Are there any other health conditions that the urogenital microbiome has an effect on? So yeah, there actually are a number. So one of the big ones is, I mentioned sexually transmitted infections are at it Uh, you're at a higher risk for them when you have this dysbiotic condition, BV, and that's basically any STI. So that includes chlamydia, gonorrhea, HPV, and also HIV. And this is really one of the key areas of research in this field. We get a lot of support to help um, come up with new therapeutics that might help reduce risk of HIV because 7,000 young women in sub-Saharan Africa are still infected with HIV every single week. And there's a lot of stigma um, against taking the preventative medications and carrying around these bottles of pills and so on. And so having maybe something where we can help um, counsel them or prevent their microbiota from placing them at higher risk uh, would be a great way to improve their overall health and reduce their chances of contracting HIV. And so a few of the other really big ones are preterm birth. Um, A number of really big studies came out in 2019 where they had cohorts of over a thousand women and they showed definitively that there is a signature that can be detected in the vaginal microbiome in the first and second trimester of particular microbes that are associated with a higher risk of preterm birth. And what we think is that some of these microbes, these particular anaerobic bacteria that are more common, again, in women with the dysbiosis and who do not have that dominant lactobacillus, they can actually ascend from the lower genital tract to the upper genital tract and infect the pregnancy tissues, potentially causing cervical change and labor induction, even infecting the amniotic fluid in the fetus. And so this is a major contributor, especially to second trimester losses and very early preterm births. So we think that maybe we would have a way uh, in the future to predict women who have these bacteria at be, as being at higher risk of preterm birth and maybe even uh, being able to, to alter that risk and reduce that outcome. The last one I'll mention is, uh, again, with the upper genital tract, the cervix is a, is a really key tish, tissue that um, is very close in proximity to the vagina. So a lot of these same bacteria have access to the cervix. And while we know that cervical cancer is caused by a virus, the HPV or human papillomavirus, and that's a virus that we can prevent um, its infection through a vaccine, and that's that's an incredibly important and um, preventable uh, condition. But in women who do get cervical cancer, their vaginal microbiome can contribute to the progression of that cancer. And so we really could improve the lives of women all the way from adolescence, girlhood, you know, going into their sexual debut and that risk of STI and HIV that's that's greatest actually in young girls right around the time of debut, all the way through pregnancies and the reproductive years and into postmenopausal years with cervical cancer, if we simply knew how to support and nurture those dominant lactobacilli. So let's step back a bit and talk about definitions. Earlier, you said upper genital tract and lower genital tract. What is the difference between the two? Well, so in the in the female anatomy, um, there's a, a pretty 
a, a pretty big difference, actually. So the lower genital tract, we consider the vagina and then sort of the outer part of the cervix. So the uterus has um, sort of this upper, more proximal part and a more distal part that connects to the vagina. And so the, the uterus um, has a particular kind of tissue called a columnar epithelium. And then the cervix uh, has also a columnar epithelium. It has kind of a narrow canal that leads into the vagina. And then the outer cervix, the outer surface of the cervix has a different kind of tissue called the stratified squamous. And that's the same kind as the vagina. So it's kind of like, it's actually, the vaginal tissue is a unique tissue. No other mammal has the same tissue. So we actually can't model the vaginal microbiome um, using animals. We That's part of why we don't have as good of knowledge of how it works and how we might um, sort of harness this microbiome to improve women's health. Uh, so it's a very unique tissue. And the fact that there's two different kinds of tissues, whereas our, our mouth or I should say our our throat and our gut and our colon, they're all the same kind of tissue. So we have different kinds of tissues with this upper genital tract being the uh, sort of inner part of the cervix, we call the canal, and the uterus and the lower genital tract being the outer part of the cervix and the vagina. Due to those unique characteristics of the urogenital tract versus the digestive tract, does that have an effect on research? Well, as I mentioned, the... uh, the, the big difference is that these tissues in humans are not at all like the same one. They're not the same in, in mammals, even uh, primates. So we really have more limited, whereas the, uh, the notobiotic mouse model has been an extremely powerful tool for understanding mechanism and disease causation uh, in studies of the, of the gastrointestinal tract. We don't have the equivalent good model Uh, for studies of the urogenital tract. Do men have a similar urogenital microbiome to women? Uh, Well, there there is some overlap, um, particularly amongst um, two partners. But they do have a unique anatomy. The male anatomy is unique and the tissue is unique. And so there is a different microbiome overall. Uh, the, the male anatomy typically has um, much more similarity to skin. And so we tend to see more skin microbes. Um, But we do see some overlap, again, between partners. And so there is the thought that um, there could be uh, shared um, microbes that contribute to dysbiosis. So, for instance, if the woman is treated with antibiotics for dysbiosis, it's possible that her partner could re-inoculate her with the microbes that caused the dysbiosis. So... There is this concept that we should treat couples instead of just treating women. In addition, uh, some of the same microbes that contribute to BV and to its health consequences um, can also contribute to health problems in men, including uh, urethritis, which is an inflammation of the urethra. What are some of the biggest factors that can affect the male urogenital tract microbiome? So one of the biggest ones that has been pretty well studied is circumcision. So a man who is circumcised has a different microbiome. So without the foreskin, there's less of these anaerobic bacteria. And this then can reduce risk of transmission and acquisition of STI in men. So this is part of why circumcision is a very common HIV preventative measure in many parts of the world. 
Is this a relatively new field of study? So I wouldn't say it's relatively new, but it is relatively underexplored. So we have fewer researchers in this area um, as compared to the the gut being sort of the dominant area of microbiome research. But I think also, particularly when it comes to your genital anatomy, even, we haven't studied it as well as other body sites. So there's still a lot to be learned about the tissues themselves, about how it changes through our life course, and how uh, these tissues are interacting with the microbiota to produce healthy outcomes or higher risk of sexually transmitted infections and reproductive complications. So how does our microbiome affect our sexual or reproductive health? So the urogenital tract microbiome in women, so particularly that of the vaginal niche, um, it is dominated by a particular species, four particular species of lactobacilli, actually. So one of four different species of lactobacilli are typically found. And these lactobacilli produce a number of biomolecules that can sort of make the niche less habitable to pathogens. And this helps prevent pathogenic infection that is uh, quite commonly um, an exposure that is experienced during sexual intercourse and contact. So these lactobacilli are considered um, healthy microbiota, but they're not always present. Vaginal lactobacilli are also protective of pregnancy. So lactobacilli have been shown to increase in abundance and stability as a pregnancy progresses. We don't maybe fully understand how this benefits um, the baby because we know that when babies are born, they don't typically get colonized long term with vaginal lactobacilli. But we think that, again, these lactobacilli are helping prevent infection of the vagina and the potential then for that infection to um, migrate into the uterus and affect the pregnancy. How is this different from what we used to think about microbiomes and reproductive health? Well, we are definitely exploring a lot of new territory here. So with pregnancy, I think that's been one of the biggest changes. We we used to think that uh, the uterus was a sterile environment altogether. And therefore, you know, the developing fetus, uh, whether it be immediately after conception or later in pregnancy, that there was no exposure to microorganisms. And now we understand that microorganisms are present, though perhaps transient or at low abundance, but they can make their way to the uterus. And so they could, in theory, be present at the time of conception. And then whether that means that they're contributing to fertility uh, really remains to be seen. So we're continuing to explore that as a field. Uh, We definitely know that uh, once the Uh, fetal membranes are in place that tends to keep the amniotic fluid and the fetus in a more protected environment so that microbes typically aren't uh, accessing the amniotic fluid or the fetal environment. But when they do, uh, that can definitely lead to preterm birth. And that's the one of the largest contributors to preterm births that happen in the second trimester. And also fetal losses is infection of bacteria in the fetal compartment. And it's thought that most of those bacteria originate from the vaginal microbiome. With regards to uh, sexual health, you know, what's what's new there is, you know, one of the areas that my lab's investigating is 
trying to understand how the microbiome, the urogenital microbiome at the time of sexual debut might impart a risk to young people uh, in terms of sexually transmitted infections such as HIV. So we often are sort of assuming that the higher risks that young people face for STIs might be behavioral. Um, they're also oftentimes young people when they're uh, around the time of initiating sexual debut, uh, more at risk of sexual assault and other things like that that increase their risk of STI. But now we're also starting to explore whether there aren't more biological factors that play a role in increased risk of STI in young people. So there's a, a lot of risk that is still present and that we're trying to actively come up with better measures to protect people against HIV infection. And one of them may be monitoring the microbiome. We know that the cervical tissues are still developing in young adolescents around the time of sexual debut, and it's also quite then possibly that, possible that the microbiome is also developing. So one active area of research um, in my group, and this is in collaboration with Dr. Allison Roxby at the University of Washington, is whether there is some signature of microbiome development and whether that um, can play a role in whether a young uh, adolescent or young adult uh, girl is, is more or less at risk of sexually transmitted infections such as HIV. Is there a social perception or barrier about studying microbes in the urogenital tract? Oh, for sure. It's uh, not something that a lot of people are really comfortable talking or thinking about. Uh, we still have a lot of general perception in society that bacteria are gross and dirty and smelly, and we don't want to think about those things when it comes to our genitals. I think it's a pretty natural um, inclination in modern society. But the truth is that a lot of bacteria are not gross or unhealthy or dirty. They're just part of our natural makeup. They're with us every day of our lives, and they can really contribute to our health and protecting us against unwanted uh, infections like STIs. Do you see this eventually being part of a sex ed curriculum in schools or talked about during visits to your doctor? Yeah, I, I absolutely see that. I, I think the more that we learn about the microbiome in general and start to understand and share with young people the, the current um, scientific evidence that, that, again, this is not uh, these aren't germs. These aren't things to be afraid of. These are microorganisms that are a part of our normal and healthy physiological makeup. I think as that idea becomes more accepted, I think there'll be greater and greater um, in involvement then of that also in our discussions around sex ed. Certainly with regard to pregnancy, a lot of women are buying into this notion and are really aware of how birth is, is really the moment that the baby is seated uh, with the mother's microbes and that breastfeeding then also is really important for this reason that it helps develop the infant microbiome. So I think there's already um, an increasing uh, appreciation for this. I think we we need to learn more. We Right now, we don't have any particular advice or medication or probiotic that we can recommend to make the vaginal microbiome more healthy. 
Um, but certainly there are a few behavioral practices that we um, can learn about in, in terms of uh, things that may impart uh, increased risk of, of disruption of the microbiome. And those kinds of things, I think, will be talked about more and more, even with young people. Are there some things that we do culturally that help or harm our urogenital microbiomes? For sure. We uh, have a cultural practice of douching that is often uh, something that women choose to do. And, and that's been a uh, almost universally shown to harm the vaginal microbiome. So, so basically any kind of um, targeted urogenital cleansing, anything other than your standard soap and water in the shower or tub is often disruptive to those healthy lactobacilli that are protective. So those kinds of practices have been shown to impart greater risk of losing that protection. So another practice that can change the microbiome for men is circumcision. So this is something that's often um, practiced in certain parts of the world to actually reduce the risk of transmitting or acquiring HIV. And there's some research that indicates that part of the reason that this changes the risk of um, transmitting HIV is due to changes in the male microbiome that occur after circumcision. What are your hopes for the future? So my hope is that we increase our knowledge of the biology of the urogenital tract microbiome so that we can really harness it. Um, I think there's a lot of potential for there to be very uh, simple and effective therapeutics that promote the growth of healthy vaginal lactobacilli such that uh, we can really harness that uh, natural protection for human pregnancies and reduce the risk of outcomes like stillbirth and preterm birth. So that's that's one of my greatest hopes. And I think I'd like the podcast listeners to take away from this an appreciation for how unique this body site is. It's very different from any other uh, body site and very different from that of any other animals. So the human neurogenital tract has these very special microorganisms they represent new forms of life that have never been studied before, and they protect us. They pr promote our health, and they help us to continue as a human species. This has been The Big Question. We've been talking to Dr. Laura Securo, a professor in U Calgary's Cummings School of Medicine, about studying the microbes that live with us in places we often don't want to talk about. For more stories about research on this topic, visit explore.ucalgary.ca. The Big Question is a co-production of CJSW and the University of Calgary. In The Big Question, we explore the world's biggest challenges with researchers from across the University of Calgary. The Big Question airs monthly on CJSW. To listen to past episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcast or visit cjsw.com or explore.ucalgary.ca. I'm Brayden Alexander. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.